This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. Several Sydney trainers were looking forward to Hilton Cope's return from Ireland in the early 1970s, following the talented jockey's successful three-year stint with trainer John Ox. Hilton, who struggled with his weight from the early days of his apprenticeship, stunned the Sydney racing world with the announcement that his riding days were over. He was just 30 years old and riding in very, very good form at the time. Is it any wonder Hilton Cope was born into a life with horses? His great-grandfather raced trotters in organised races along the Parramatta Road in the 19th century. His grandfather ran a delivery service with horse and cart before the turn of the century, and Hilton's father loved all kinds of horses, including the undernourished little pony mare he bought from the local pound around 1950. And that pony helped Hilton Cope develop skills that would take him to the upper echelon of Sydney jockeys. In his life after racing, Hilton established a breeding, spelling and loosened farm in the Hunter Valley, which grew as the years rolled on. Hilton and Marilyn Cope ran the property known as Kelvinside for three decades before selling it on to the Darley operation. Hilton retired on the Central Coast around 2004 and has since devoted his time to golf, fishing, grandchildren and a little bit of hobby thoroughbred breeding. A long overdue podcast with a bloke that I've known for a long, long time and a bloke I remember as one of the best jockeys of his generation. Hilton Cope, it's a delight to have you on the podcast. Morning, John. Well, Hilton, you're probably hooked on the game of golf. I think it's fair to say, and it's a very rare week that you don't play at least three times. That's right. Depending on the weather, it's three times a week, John. Do you treat it like the US Masters, or are you pretty laid back about it? Um, Probably not the US Masters, probably the Australian Open. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a competitor in Hilton Cope, isn't it? You like to do it properly. Yeah. You know, I've got a hunch your love of fishing was instilled in you by the late Norm Munsey, a fellow jockey and a fanatical fisherman. Yes, he was my best mate, uh, John. We we fished all over the place and uh, it was a terrible, terrible thing when he had that awful accident, uh, rock fishing, many years ago. He was obsessed with with fishing and he'd go to the Grafton July Carnival every year when he was still a jockey. He'd ride in a few races, but he'd mainly fish. That's right. I I think he went about 35 years in a row, I think. It was incredible. He used to stay at a place called Yamba. Exactly, yes. Well, Anne still goes every year and she's up there now. Mm. His wife and uh, the family, they still have their holidays there. At the time we're recording this podcast, you have a house guest whose birthday is being celebrated as we speak, and it's none other than your remarkable mum, and it just happens to be her 102nd birthday. Yes, she's unbelievable. and She's very active and lives with my sister at the Oaks and has her own accommodation apart from the house, looks after herself. Mm. Uh, does the Eddie um, 
who wants to be a millionaire and gets about a quarter of the answers right. <laughs> Does she? <laughs> knows everybody's birthday. Yeah. Unbelievable. You yeah. tell me she knows the birthdays of every one of her great-grandchildren. Yes, yes. Always sends a card to everybody, mm. handwritten on her comments on the card. He's remarkable. And, and yes. has a good grasp of current affairs, you tell me. Oh, unbelievable, yes. Doesn't mm. miss a trick on anything. Mm. You've never forgotten the day your dad came home with that scrawny little mare. Do you remember yes. what he paid for her? Yeah, nine pound five shillings. <laughs> Probably uh, a bit of money, 1950, Hilton. Oh, I, I think it was pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, she hadn't been overfed. No, she was very undernourished, but once she was fed, uh, Dad used to get the scraps from uh, one of the cereal companies called Wheat, Wheat Bix, it was, or something, and yeah. she did a treat within three three months and it was a very pretty pony. Yeah. Her name was Flicker. That's it. Had you ridden at all before Flicker? Only a couple of times at riding schools. Hmm. Well, always you, interesting. <clears throat> so you're pretty well self-taught. Pretty well, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you and Flicker became a strong combination around the Sydney shows, the Sydney Royal, the Castle Hill, the St Ives, and there were a million of them around Sydney in that era. That's right, yes, yeah, yeah all around uh, Bosley Park and Fairfield. Fairfield had an agricultural show. Mm. Mm, yeah. You had a horse dentist who looked after Flicker's teeth. His name was Tiny Ha, and he also worked around the Sydney racing stables, and you were only a little bloke at this stage, and it was Tiny who suggested you should consider an apprenticeship, and he told you that Vic Thompson Sr. had a vacancy at Rose Hill. Yes, that's right. What did you do about it? Uh, I left school early, did my intermediate certificate and left at 14 and a half and went there. Um, and I was probably too small, actually, to to go straight into riding. And mm. uh, Vic, in his wisdom, uh, left it till I was 16 before I had my first ride. Mm. Well, Vic Thompson was the grandfather of the prominent Randwick trainer, John Thompson, and he was the father of Vic Thompson Jr., who won a Sydney premiership when he was training for Jack and Bob Ingham. Is it fair to say, old Vic, and I say that affectionately, was tough but fair. He was very, very tough and he worked you very hard. But as you know, John, if you don't work hard when you're young, you never will. Mm. And uh, it certainly, certainly did me a lot of good, actually. Mm. I remember him very well, Hilton. and He had a temper, didn't he? If something didn't please him, everybody knew about it. Yes, he had a funny way about him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you knew where you stood. My word, you did. Yeah. You didn't get many pats on the back. But he was an absolute workaholic himself and expected everybody to be the same. That's right, yes. But as a horse trainer, how do you define his ability? I looked up to him immensely. Uh, he was a very, very good judge of his horse and knew when he was right. And it was a big betting stable and when they, when they did bet, they, they, they raced very, very well. Mm. He was a very good trainer, worked them very hard but fed them hard. Mm. And always waited till horses were mature before he really, mm. uh, really put the pressure on them. Mm. Just to give our listeners an idea uh, of how meticulous he was, you told me this story years ago. You probably forget telling me. When he had a bit of spare time, he would go into the tack room 
with an oil can and he would actually oil the leg straps, the clips on the leg straps on every rug. Yes, yeah, he would, yes. Yep. That's unheard of, mate. <laughs> he, <laughs> he'd find work. <laughs> he was a unique character. Today they use WD-40, of course. <laughs> well, they have plastics. <laughs> but, but he had an old-fashioned oil can. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He did. Your first race ride was on a horse called Bowl Sunbeam. Better yes, forgotten. At Hawkesbury. Yeah, yeah I, didn't, I, I didn't know much about the race. I got a bit lost. The horse, <laughs> the horse was the newest way around. Yeah. <laughs> Took you 15 rides to win a race, and that was on mm-hmm. Bold Lass at Canterbury. Did Vic yeah. train her? Yeah, trained her for uh, Tom Dunn, butcher from Balgallo, who finished up owning Jane Hero. Mm. 1960, big year mm. for young Hilton Cope. Yes, it was a big year. You were judged ducks of the AJC Apprentices School. Yes. People today would wonder what the hell that means, but it was like winning an Academy Award back then. It was, yeah, it was, it was quite a thrill. I've still got, I'm still sitting here in my office with the cup in front of me. Who were the other apprentices in your class? Um, it was Spinks. He, I think he ran second. Mm. Sid Spinks, who's a lovely rider, apprentice mm. to Theo Green. Yeah. He ran second. Mm. And, and uh, I think Chris Gwilliam may have been there too. Another good rider too. Yes, yes. As he proved later. Yes. Now, in October of 1960, a wonderful thing happened to you. You got yourself on a horse called Red Wind in mm-hmm. the Group 1 Metropolitan Handicap. You were 17. How do you get a Group 1 ride at 17 years of age? Well, Reg Mills trained opposite us at Rose Hill uh, and uh, I'd only had seven stone, which I could ride at that time. Mm. And there weren't many jockeys could ride it. Alvic uh, told him to put me on and he said, I'll give him the instructions, which he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a he was wonderful man to read a race, wonderful. And uh, he told me exactly what to do as I carried out and mm. beat the favourite by a couple of lengths at the finish. Yeah, you went to the front a fair way from home, I think. I went to the front seven from home. Mm. Mm. And just said, catch me if you can. Yeah, yeah without overdoing it, yes. You had a little one-pound saddle back then, mm-hmm. which you had purchased off the late Arthur Podmore, who'd That's been right. one of Sydney's best-known lightweight jockeys in his day. Um, he was a brother to George. George's brother, older brother, I think. Yes, he was. Now, you've still got that saddle. I have, yes. Yeah, still got it in the cupboard here. Goodness me. be a long time since you've used it. <laughs> yeah. Not much good to me now. Right at the end of your apprenticeship, Vic Thompson came up with a terrific three-year-old filly called Jane Hero. Now, you were her jockey exclusively, Hilton, and you got Mm -hmm. her home in the AJC Oaks. There was a good filly in that race you were worried about. How fun, I think it was. Mm. How fun, that's right. Mm. What happened in the race? Uh, She pulled very hard, Jane Hero, and you had to be careful not to go too early on or she wouldn't get the distance and our fun went and shot around the outside of the whole field or three from home and uh, I let it go because I thought well, it can't sustain that and luckily it worked out exactly right she weakened with 50 to go and Jane Hero got up and won quite easily. And your filly didn't pull as hard as she could on occasions? Uh, no they went fairly fast in that race yes mm. and that suited her. Slow pace she was a hard ride. <clears throat> 
You won the 1968 Canterbury Guineas on a horse called Broker's Tip. Certainly one of the best horses you ever rode. Very and tough horse. How did you win a nine and a half furlong race on him? That'd be as far as he'd want to go. Well, Canterbury helped, turning track, mm. yes. And a soft run? Soft run, yes. Yeah, it was in Lake Road, ruler man, and <clears throat> I just tra- tailed him. The decision was made to give Broker's Tip a crack at the derby of that year, and mm-hmm. you obviously hoped you'd retain the ride, but George Moore wiggled his way on, and in that era, Hilton, he could get on anything he wanted to be on. Exactly right, yes. I knew I was going to lose it as soon as, as soon as I saw him talking to the trainer. Yeah. <coughs> and the trainer was Harold Riley. That's right, in New Zealand. Harold Riley, very good trainer. An expatriate Kiwi who settled mm-hmm. at Warwick Farm and he was here right to the end of his days. Yes. Mm. Well, as it turned out, George Moore did you a favour because Broker's Tip failed to stay and you picked up another ride in the derby which could stay. A horse called Wilton Park, trained by that great character, Morrie Anderson. Had you had much to do with the Anderson stable previously? No, I hadn't ridden much, no, no. Um, I think he was having trouble getting a, a, a decent, prominent rider to ride him, and I just happened to come along. Mm. Um, he was, I think, he was fifteen to one outsider. Yeah, maybe well, longer. You and Ray Selkrieg went stride for stride the last hundred yards, and gee, it was a close finish. Nobody knew for sure. What did you think when you hit the line? I didn't know. I uh, I used to have a fair idea that it was terribly close. And I tried to save with Ray after the race, but uh, I was lucky he didn't save. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. You know, one by a whisker. And what are your memories of the late Maury Anderson, Hilton? He was, uh, he could be, he could be a cranky old fellow on occasions. He was, he was very prominent, wasn't he? Yeah. Yes. And, uh, yeah. I always remember him whenever one of his horses had a, a race in on a heavy track. He used to always tie a knot in its tail after the race. I don't know why. Yeah. He'd always do that. After the race? Yeah, yeah. That'll <laughs> <laughs> thing stick in your mind. He had a big, loud voice. Yes, and he used it. And if he was dissatisfied with uh, a particular jockey's ride, you could hear him all over the race course. Yes, he, if, he, if he took to you, he's getting that jockey around pretty quick. <laughs> oh, yeah. I saw him uh, let fly on Bill Kamer one day at Hawkesbury. Many, many years ago, Bill had no luck on one of Morrie's in a, an ordinary yeah. race. I think it was a maiden, and Morrie cut loose. <laughs> and I, I think the stewards actually escorted Kamer to the jockey's room to get him out of the birdcage. <laughs> uh, Bill had a good temperament. He, he, would have, he would have, wouldn't have worried too much. <laughs> Hilton, I'll get you to stand by there. We'll clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Hilton Cope after this. The completion of the Great Southern Sail in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sail season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. 
English ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at english.com.au. Reminiscing with former champion jockey Hilton Cope. Hilton Derby McCarthy won the 1969 Epsom on Broker's Tip, but you got back on him in the autumn of 1970 for two wonderful wins in the Doncaster and the All Aid Stakes. Now, in both of those races, he beat a horse called Al Rello, who must have been sick of the sight of Broker's Tip. He kept running second to him. Yeah, that's what Roy Higgins told me after he went, after I beat him on the second time. What did he say? He, he told me he was sick of the sight of the horse's backside. Yeah. yeah, he just had a little bit on El Rello. And he was just—he was too good for him. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Not by much. No, no. Yeah, looking back now, and you've ridden some wonderful horses here and overseas. How do you rate Broker's Tip? Oh, he's right up there with the best of them, Broker's Tip. But we didn't see the best of him, really. Uh, you know, he, he he went to America at his peak. Mm. Um, I think he bled. Oh. Mm. Yes. That's why he went to America? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm. 1970 was a pretty good year for H. Cope. In the spring, you got yourself on a wonderful horse called Tails to win your second Metropolitan. Had you ridden much for his trainer, Pat Murray, at the time? Not a lot, no. I don't know how I got the called up for that one, but I was certainly glad of it. It's a mm. great horse, a beautiful horse to mount. He's be- he had a, you were on a magnificent horse. It was a great feeling even to be on his back. Yeah, what the power you mean. Yes, yes, yeah. 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 You ran second on him in the James Barnes Plate. You won a Rose Hill Cup. You ran fourth in the Sydney Turf Club Cup and then came the Metrop. You got back a bit in that Metropolitan? Yes, yeah, he had a lot of weight and um, had to give him a chance, but he, he had no trouble beating those horses. No. He beat Charlemagne and yes. Gallicus. It probably wasn't the best Metropolitan in history. He was a class above them, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, he mm. certainly was. Now, as a type, I mean, to stand back and look at him, you'd be standing with Pat Murray in the enclosure while the tails was parading. He'd take your breath away. Ah, oh, well, if standing there, you just feel that confident, the confidence of those through you, you know, when you looked at him, you couldn't, couldn't get on him quick enough. Mm. While we're in the silk department, we should mention that you had a handful of rides on the Gundawindi Grey. You won the yeah. Fernhill Handicap on Gunsins. I think he had nine stone four or 60 kilos, and there were yep. 20 runners in the Fernhill that year. Yeah, and he was 16th at the half mile. Was he? Yes. Yeah. Was that on purpose? Yes, yeah. Yeah. He was trained by Bill Wheelow back then. That's right. You remember what he told you before the race? Uh, he was very confident of him. He um, he, uh, he just said the horse is flying and he's a great horse and he said mm. you've got to give him a big chance early with this weight on your back mm. just to get the mile as a T-roll. Yeah. Well, he, he spoke a bit of sense then. Old he Bill. did. He yeah. did. Mm-hmm. A few months later, you rode him into fourth place in the Canterbury Guineas, won by Royal Show. Do you remember mm-hmm. that race? I do, yeah. Royal Show was just too good for him. Mm-hmm. Royal Show was always too good for him. He was a very good horse, Royal Show. Mm-hmm. Sent, uh, he was 
trained by the, uh, Tommy Smith. Yep. You ran, you ran third on the grey then in the Rose Hill Guineas and, again, as you said, Royal Show also won that and mm-hmm. Baguette ran second. Yes, yep. I didn't have a very good run in the race. I was held up on straightening. and uh, I thought he could win the derby mm-hmm. uh, after that. Yeah. He just didn't. Royal Show got, was too strong for him again, and Planet Kingdom ran second, so they were two very, very A-grade horses. Yep, that was the 1970 AJC Derby, so he had his chance in that, did he? He had a lovely run, yes. Yeah. You told me that Gunsin wasn't the ideal horse to ride. You said if you didn't hang on to his head, he could lose coordination a bit. Uh, he used to... He used to hang in Sydney Way and he'd, he'd get his balance off your hands. Yep. He, he'd, he'd put his head down and take your weight of your hand and that, that gave him his balance to stretch mm. and that's how you had to ride him. You'd hold his head and give him a smack around the tail with the other hand. Mm. That, that's how he liked to race. So, was, so you had to know him. You, you couldn't just jump yeah, on him cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. No. He was a better horse once you did know him. Yeah. Kevin Langby used to ride him very well. Didn't he? Yes. Now, Hilton, somebody else was watching Gunsin very closely around this time, T.J. Smith. Yes. And it yes. wasn't long after that the horse landed in Tullock Lodge and I always felt a little sorry for poor old Bill Wheeler. That must have been a hell of a setback for him. Yes, he didn't do much wrong with the horse, but uh, I think the offer of, from Tommy was too good. Mm. You had one ride in the Melbourne Cup. Mm-hmm. It was 1966. You rode a very good stayer from Sydney called Tea Biscuit. You ran. He was trained si- by Pat Murray. Too. Yeah, Pat Murray. Mm-hmm. He was a good horse too. He was a good yeah, stayer, wasn't he? Was very good stayer. Yeah, ran a great race. You ran sixth, and in the run, just for one wild moment, you allowed yourself the luxury of thinking truth. On, yes, on- <laughs> I had the run of the race. Unbelievable run in that race, and. Mm. Everything went right and the horse travelled well, but a, a horse that had a turbo engine called Galilee went past him as if his legs were tied together. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, he was a mighty horse, Galilee. Oh. Bart used to get a twinkle in the eye when he spoke about him. Oh, he was he was better the last furlong. <clears throat> excuse me. In, in a two-mile race, he was better the last furlong than in a mile race. Mm. And he was pigeon-toed, you know, Hilton. He was shockingly pigeon-toed. And there were times in his career when he looked lame, even on race day. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, he, he walked like a duck. Yeah. Mm, mm, you know, Bart told me once that uh, when he was on one of his uh, finicky days, when he, he wasn't stepping out as cleanly as he should, he would get Higgins or John Miller or whoever the jockey happened to be to stay on the blind side of the clerk of the course Coming, oh, right. coming down past the grandstand in the preliminary, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but Bart used to tell the jockey, "Get on the other side of the yeah, clock." Yeah, I don't, so want, he wouldn't be scratched, I don't mm-hmm. want the stewards to see him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's incredible, isn't it? No flies on Bart. Oh, amazing. No. Now you rode in that cup, only the one. Yes. Do you remember the, the day, the occasion, the pomp, and the pageantry, and the thrill for young Hilton Cope? To have gone around in a Melbourne Cup. Yeah, I never, never got that, never got that thrill again so much. It was mm. very, very exciting. You had a spectacular apprenticeship. 
You yes. outrode your claim in only your second season. You rode 92 winners in that season. Mm-hmm. But by age 18, you were in big trouble with weight. Mm. Now, you were pretty good during the week. But you told me once that come Saturday night and all the discipline went out the window. What sort of things did you get up to on a Saturday night? Oh, well, at that time, all the major places we went to was Checkers and um, Chevron Hilton, all the entertainment and good food. Mm. It was a a great letdown, but you'd pay for it from then on. Yeah. Sunday, you'd be back on the lettuce leaf. (laughs) (laughs) Can I give you... Two examples of the toll that continual wasting was taking on your body. Now, you might have forgotten these two incidents, but I can remember them clearly. One day at Kembla Grange, I was calling a race. You rode a horse called Gull Tulip. You mm-hmm. finished wide out. I think you might have run fourth or fifth or somewhere. I won, actually. Oh, did no. you win? Mm. 80 metres past the winning post, and I'm sort of got the binoculars there and I'm calling the run on. I saw you fall off, and when you hit the ground, you were literally writhing in agony. You told me later that you had stomach cramps from dehydration. Yes, yes. Um, now you would have taken potassium and salt tablets and you wouldn't have got the cramps, but mm. we didn't know about them at that time. I just couldn't stay on the horse any longer. No, no. And luckily, you were wide out on the track and nothing galloped over you. No, no. Now, there was another time in town, can't remember which track, you were so weak and so distressed on returning to scale, you couldn't physically unsaddle the horse. And the chief steward, Jack Burke, came over and escorted you back to the jockey's room. Do you recall that occasion? I do, I do, and I remember Jack Burke. He's the best steward I ever rode under in my life. Was he? Yes, a marvellous head steward, marvellous. Why do you say that? Uh, he he could read a race, and uh, he'd, he'd, he'd tell you afterwards if you, rather than pull you in and, and, and give you a week or a month or whatever they used to do, if if he thought he could help you, he'd, he'd talk to you, you know, mm. rather than rather than humiliate you. He'd, he'd talk to you and tell you. And uh, I think he did a much better job with the jockeys than uh, actually the severity that they do these days. You were 26 years old when an offer came from France to ride for a very wealthy owner called Countess Bathanani. Now, with the higher scale of weights over there, you jumped at the opportunity. You were there for six months and it turned out to be a nightmare. She was happy enough to have you ride her horses, but her trainer, Albert Klimscher, didn't want to know about it. It was just awful for you, Hilton. You rode one winner. Yes, I only had eight or ten rides, I think. <clears throat> I didn't get on with Slimshire at all and he didn't get on with me. Yeah. You'd ride work, obviously. Oh, yes, yes. I had a retainer. I had to do a – I'd signed up to two. I was signed up to ride work every day. Mm. Were you riding on those beautiful sand training tracks that run through the forest at Chantilly? What a oh, beautiful, yes, yeah, magnificent yeah. place, isn't it? Magnificent, yes. Now, it was the legendary Australian golfer, Kel Nagel, who provided the solution. How did Kel's rescue package work? Well, I'd, I'd had a bit of luck for Kel. I'd won on a horse he owned called Aladdin's Lamp for Colin Hayes before yeah. I went over. And um, he knew I was, 
not satisfied where I was through, through Bill Williamson actually, yeah. and uh, he was great mates with Paddy McGrath of Guinness fame that owned the brewery of Guinness. Yeah, and he and Paddy was a trainer, owner trainer in Ireland. He he uh, and he spoke to John Ox Senior who was looking for a, a jockey, and he liked Australian jockeys, mm. and uh, he got me the job. Um, and it's uh, the best three years of my riding. He treated me as his son. Yeah. Marvellous man. Yeah, you told me when you came home that it was the happiest three years you ever spent in racing. Yes. You still yes. hold with that? I do, yes. And, and Australian jockeys that rode for him subsequently, Ron Quinton was one. Yes, Speak yes. so highly of him. Yes, yes. Well, we all, Ron and myself still keep in touch with John Ox Jr. I ring him. Uh, probably every couple of months and have mm. a mag. Good. Mm, yeah. He, he's actually Sinead's godfather. Is that right? Yes. Mm. Yeah, well, that sort of uh, exemplifies the uh, the depth and the sincerity of your friendship with a, a great bloke and a great trainer. Mm. One of your great thrills in Ireland was to ride a winner for the Queen Mother and the horse's name was Mascara. I think the race course is now gone. What was that track called? Baldoyle. Yep. So, so it's only just been made a housing estate after all those years. Goodness me. Mm. And we, you obviously conscious you were wearing the Queen Mother's colours. That must have been a special moment. Yes, that's the Queen's colours now. Yep. And uh, no, it was a thrill. Mm. It was the, it's the only winner the royal family's had in Ireland, even up till this day. Mm. Is that right? And H. Cope was the jockey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On three occasions during the Irish winter, you hightailed it to India where you gained short-term contracts with the Ted Fordyce stable. Now, yes. Ted was a former Australian jockey who'd been in India since the 1930s and you mm-hmm. rode many winners in those three trips to India and there was one very good horse amongst them, you tell me. Yes. Sarah Haven, yeah, I won everything on her. She won 1,000 guineas, 2,000 guineas, Oaks, Derby, she won everything. Yeah. She won six group ones in a row. I wonder if racing in India was as strong in the 1970s as it had been in the 1930s when Edgar Britt went over there and there was massive wealth among the Maharajas. Yeah, well, they, they put the wealth tax on and took a lot of the clamour out of racing, but it was still very good. Mm. It was still very strong on on very, very good race courses. Yeah, what about the racetracks? Yeah, and they were cooch. Cooch. Tracks, yes, and after each race there was about 100 women going along filling in the divots, divots with, with soil after every race. Goodness me. And it could be more than 100 women. Mm. You rode mainly in Madras, which is now Chennai, Chennai and yes. occasionally at Bangalore. So you didn't see a, a great deal of the country? No, no. Now, you've got three daughters, Hilton, Sharon, Lisa and Sinead. Yes. And Sinead is a true blue Colleen. She was born in Ireland. She was born in Dublin. And, and Hat Street was the name of the street. So I think that's yeah. fairly appropriate. <laughs> yeah. When it was time to return to Australia with its lower weight scale, your thoughts were dominated by the prospect of life in the sweat box again. Now, on the flight home, you turned to your wife, Marilyn, and calmly announced, and I believe she got a hell of a shock, that your riding days were over. Is that how it happened? 
Well, yes, and I think she was very pleased. Was she? Yeah. Yes, yeah. I was pretty pretty grumpy with that, with that wasting. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. Um, I can remember Jim Cassidy's wife telling me once when he was having a little bit of a sweat, he could be an ornery little piece of work. <laughs> Changes your attitude. <laughs> so you were a bit hard to get on with, eh? Yes. Yeah. yeah. You had a dream, Hilton. You'd been fascinated with thoroughbred breeding since childhood. And when you'd spend holidays at the Oakley Stud back then as a kid, you fell in love with mares and foals and the whole setup. Now, yes, I got the bug. On returning from Ireland, you envisaged a property of your own, which you could develop into a gistment farm for horses owned by the many people you'd ridden for. And you found your dream property at Aberdeen. Yes, that was a very exciting time in my life. How many acres to start with? Um, 605 acres. Yeah, but it grew, didn't it? Uh, yes. It, uh, I finished up um, buying each property that came up for sale around me and uh, finished up with about 1,200 acres. Yeah. Mm. Spelling was your principal activity and you could have anything up to 150 horses on adjustment. Yes, that's quite a big business. You did the job very well, though, mate, and many prominent trainers wanted their horses to spell at Kelvin's side. Who were your regular clients? And there were many of them. Neville Begg was one, wasn't he? Neville Begg, uh, Maxie Lees, Ronnie Quinton, mm. Pat Farrell, and uh, John Inglis had all his horses there for many, many years. Yeah. Mm. What's the best, the best horse you ever spelled at Kelvin's side? Uh, snippets. Snippets, yeah. Yeah, Snippets and Romantic Dream. Mm-hmm. They'd be the best two, I think. Yeah, Snippets, great racehorse and an equally great sire. Yes. Mm. You raced a great, f- sire, great broodmare sire. Oh, hasn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You raced a few horses during the Kelvin side years mm-hmm. uh, and you bred quite a number. You're still breeding horses commercially. Mm-hmm. Mayor Call Shalt Not gave you many, many thrills. Four wins, including a Magic Millions three year old and a listed race at Doomman, the slipper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was a good mare. Very, 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 very good two year old and three year old. I think it's fair to say the best horse you've bred and sold was Al Mansour Hilton. He won 11 races, three Group Ones. $1.6 million in prize money. Yes, he was by Atalic out of um, uh, Classic Victory. Yeah. Mm. And born yeah, and read on your place. Yes, yeah. Mm. yeah. I bought Classic Victory off Dawn Tasca, yeah. who had all the horses with, with me at Coven's side, mm. along with Spinnaker Bay, who was another good mare. Yes. Mm. You ran a herd of Murray Greys on that property. How many head? Uh, 200. Right, and some of them are still there, I believe. They are. It's just on the breed of, not not the actual cows, but the breed of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dahlia's still still got Murray Grays on the place. One of your most enterprising moves was to put a hundred acres of that property under Lucen, and at one stage you were getting seven cuts a year out of that crop. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was a winner. That was good. It was a lot of hard work, but. Um, it was like money in the bank. Mm. Well, if you had your hay shed full, you, you, were, you were pretty well drought-proof. Yeah. 
One day at the English Easter yearling sale, you were approached by Dali manager Ollie Tate, who tested your reaction about the potential sale of Kelvin's side. Did you get a shock? I did, actually, yes. Hmm. Yeah. I had to put a lot of thought into it before I decided. Yeah. What did Marilyn say? Oh, she was glad. <laughs> <laughs> She'd had enough of Kelvin's side. But... She'd had enough of droughts. <laughs> yeah. So how long did it take for the deal to come to fruition? A long time. It took a long time to go through government, actually. Mm. It took uh, over nine months because of the, uh, um, the foreign currency, yep. the investment board. You must have had very mixed feelings the day you walked off that place. I mean, you'd you'd built it up from nothing. Um, I, I can imagine there was tremendous sentiment when it was time to leave. Yes, I did love the property. I really did. And I, I kept a, a house down the road, a workman's cottage with, on six acres. And um, I lived there for nearly a year. So just to gradually break away, yeah. which worked out very good. And then came down to the Central Coast. Yeah. You've retained a small but select band of brood mares, most of which you keep at Mitchell's Yarraman Park Stud. One of them, Ellen Bari, is um, domiciled at Pitt Town. That's she's right. a she's a half sister to Amelia's Dream, which Gay Waterhouse said looked like being a champion until she broke down. Mm-hmm. One of your mares is Camparella. You sold a cult out of her this year for one point two million. Yes, we did very well with him. It's a very exciting horse. Um, just looking forward to the two year old season with him. Yeah, so what's how he how he goes? Still retained a small share in him. Mm-hmm. Same now- one with the Mitchell boys. You got a big kick on Saturday when Jungberg won at Randwick, trained by Ron Quinton. That was his third win because he is the first foal of another one of your mares, Octavia, who I believe is empty this year. Ah, uh, yes. I've got a full brother to him to be sold this year. Yeah. Uh, it was a very attractive horse, but Ron's done a wonderful job with, with Jungberg. He's uh, only had 10 starts for three wins and four placings. And uh, I do think he's a. He's a black type horse. I don't know how far he'll go, but he'll definitely be a black type horse. Yeah, he's got a great nature, and uh, he, he really, really tries hard. Now you'll be the envy of many breeders this year because you happen to have three weanlings backstage, all by I am invincible. Yes, he's some stallion, isn't he? Oh, isn't he? What? He's the best sprinting stallion since Star Kingdom. Gee, John. that's a, that's a big statement. That's what I, that's a, my opinion. Yeah, and I'm sure Harry and Arthur agree with me. Mm, they just run. Oh, they're good, and they get better with age. Mm. You've been to have a good look at I Am Invincible. He's a magnificent animal, isn't he? He's got the temperament of a kid's pony, and he's a magnificent horse. Mm. He's take really take his breath away to look at him. I'm going to finish our interview, our podcast, uh, with mention of something that happened many years ago, just to illustrate how far back you and I go. In 1971, I had to go to London to call the English Derby for 2GB. I had the weekend off before the Derby, so I gave you a quick call. I flew to Paris and I went to visit you and Marilyn at Chantilly, 
and I stayed a couple of nights with you in that lovely, uh, lovely little rural cottage you were living in at Chantilly, and I can remember you and I, <laughs> we had a few too many to drink, and we talked horses until the wee small hours. Yes, I, I love talking horses, but uh, the drinking days are over. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, look, it's time we did that again, Hilt. I think we should uh, have a reenactment of that wonderful night from 1971, but I'll tell you what, I won't be staying up as late this time. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to talk. Great to have you on the podcast. And uh, I think Australian racing was poorer for the fact that you had to give it away at age 30. You had a hell of a lot more to offer, uh, but health came first and at 30 years of age, you pulled the pin, but in the time you were there, Hilton Cope, you were one of the best jockeys I saw and one of the best of your generation. Thank you, John. Great to talk. Okay, bye. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oaklands Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yielding sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.